The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. We made it this time. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, can you hear me? We can hear you. Can I, you I, hear I, I, oh I can't my hear gosh. Him. Ah, there he is. Look right. at this fucking technology. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Well, it sounds like we got a show. It <laughs> sounds like somebody began drinking even before us. Yeah, it's too bad I'm your guest. <laughs> the rule is the rule is here that you do have to have a cocktail in hand as you do this podcast. Otherwise, you're you're immediately banned and sent to the rock and roll corner. <laughs> okay, then I'm just going to adjust a couple of things on here. All right. um, uh, oh, b- by the way, while Eric's getting ready, I spoke to Audis today. Ooh, potential CES 2020 sponsor to get us down to Vegas. And? And I'm going to, uh, a couple of things that they asked for. I said, I asked them for 2500 bucks. And what did they say? Uh, and they said, we'll get back to you, but would you also be interested in uh, giving, you know, giveaways, product reviews, uh, all that sort of stuff? And I said, I'd talk to you about it. Yeah, absolutely. We do that. The thing is, is, is I went in saying $10,000 and got 2500 bucks. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they got that kind of, that kind of coin. However, what they will do is on an ongoing basis, give us stuff to give away. Oh, okay. So it doesn't sound like this is what's getting us over the line to CES 2020. I don't know. I, I can't can't say, but what I can tell you is that we're going to get some uh, audio and VR gear. VR gear? Yes. Tell me about that. I can't because they say it's under wraps at the moment. Did you sign an NDA? Uh, not yet. Well, then you can tell me off air. I, I haven't signed anything as an NDA. I'm just telling you that uh, they have uh, not only some, some headphones. You don't know anything about it yet, do you? I don't know anything okay, about it. Okay, just give me one, one, one more second. <clears throat> Do you see the Monty Python uh, Holy Grail movie? Yeah, of course. In the scene where they're where they're building the Trojan bunny. Yes. It sort of sounds like he's building the Trojan bunny in the background. <laughs> Run away! Run away! Fiends, I'll tear them apart. No, 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 sir. I have a plan, I thought it sounded like uh, some sort of young Frankenstein laboratory thing. Well, there there is that gurgle in the background. I don't know what. And it doesn't matter. I mean, he's maybe that's where all the heads and jars are. <laughs> it does. It does sound like he's in some sort of uh, mad scientist lab someplace. Awesome. The thing is, is that we're going to play this at the very beginning of the show, and nobody's going to have any idea, I, any clue of what's going on, why we're recording the program two nights in a row. Uh, this is true, but uh, the fact that the guest showed up and the technology worked, and that we began the podcast eight minutes early. Well, uh, I don't know that we really began it eight minutes early because he just walked out of the room. <laughs> And he's the only part of the show we haven't done uh, I yet. know, I know. I, I hope you keep all this in, because it shows exactly what kind of a mess this program can be before you get a hold of it. <laughs> Dumpster fire behind the scenes every freaking week. Every week. There's something. Something blows up. Something doesn't work. Somebody can't be heard. Somebody's too loud. Somebody's got gurgling in the background. Yeah, I see. I've got some software that can take out room hum. And, and, and but I don't know that we can take out the the gurgling. I'm sure there's like a, a. I'm sure there's an anti gurgle plugin somewhere. 
Yeah, but I've been looking at that stuff lately, and that'll probably be $8,000. No, we won't be. <laughs> yeah, we, we can't go to CES because we had to digitally edit out the gurgle from Eric Helper. <laughs> what, the, what the hell is going on? Eric? <laughs> okay. Let's try this. Means with mic check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, oh, we I'm can back. hear ourselves bouncing back. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, nope. three, four, no, five, six, seven, eight. Nope. Try that. Alan, give Very us, uh, give us a Perfect. Okay, much better. Okay. But oh, do we lose Alan now? No, I'm here. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Okay. okay excellent. All right. Are we ready to go? Okay. All right. Let's punch it, Chewie. We're ready to go. I'm ready. All right. Stand by. Here we go. Here we go. Live from Studio 3B, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guests Sting. Songs for a Cause. Robbie Robertson and Friends release a cover of The Weight. Longtime music exec Eric Alper weighs in on the declining value of the cause song. Alan may or may not have a bunch of swag to give away at CES. Working on it really hard. Plus, artificial intelligence comes to sex toys. No. No. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So I'm on the Twitter machine, and one of uh, the people that I'm following that's putting up some really interesting content that I really want to retweet has the Twitter handle of Tits McGee. <laughs> okay. She's a scientist, and so her actual Twitter handle is Scientits, and her username is Tits McGee. Now, I'm a big fan of Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. Do you remember that scene? In fact, it was on this afternoon. Where, of course, to highlight the 80s misogyny of broadcasting of the day, they changed the introduction to the 6 o'clock news from Veronica Corningstone to Tits McGee. Yeah, okay. She doesn't even skip a beat. You're watching Channel 4 News with five-time Emmy Award-winning anchor Ron Burgundy and Tits McGee. Good evening, San Diego. I'm Veronica Corningstone. Tits McGee is on vacation. <laughs> and I'm Tits. I'm Ron Burgundy. <clears throat> if this had actually happened, and of course it definitely happened in some TV stations somewhere in the 70s and 80s, uh, that the female anchor responded quick-witted and cleverly to that horrific misogyny. Yes. So here's my problem. I follow Scientits, Tits McGee, on Twitter, and from time to time, I want to hit the retweet button. But I'm concerned. Would retweeting her make someone uncomfortable and poorly reflect on me, or is this a holdover from my mainstream media days where bosses are crippled with fear of offending even a single person? I choose B, and the reason is that the Twitter mob is all about protecting feelings rather than protecting opinion or actually going below the surface to figure out exactly what's being talked about. So you are going to get somebody somewhere who will be offended that you would even look at somebody's account if they had that kind of handle. 
but this is the problem is that, you know, I remember in my mainstream media days that I would get hauled into the boss's office and it would happen from time to time, like maybe every three months or so, where I was being raked over the coals for something I said on TV. And I would say, well, how many complaints did we get? And I could tell by the look behind the eyes that it was just a single complaint. Yeah, I know. And, and so mainstream media definitely afraid of offending even a single person. I would say, okay, but if 99.998% of our audience is okay with this, you're telling me to stop because 0.002% doesn't like it? Well, they'll tell you that that, is, that one complaint is representative of a certain percentage of the viewing or listening audience. And what, what do you think that ratio actually is? I have no idea. I used to be a program director and I used to have to deal with Canadian Broadcast Standards Council complaints. And unlike the United States, where you need many, many, many letters or emails or complaints to come in before you actually take action against something... A Canadian Broadcast Standards Council complaint is triggered by one and one only complaint from someone somewhere. And you have to go through all the rigmarole of addressing that complaint. Now, the reason we are very careful in management in, in, in Canada is because uh, the CBSC is a self-regulating body. The CRTC has nothing to do with any of the complaints that, of, of anything that might happen on TV or radio. The idea being that so long as the industry is self-regulating, we won't have to worry about imposing regulations on the industry. That's right. And in, in the United States, it's completely the opposite. The FCC, which is in charge of all the regulations, is also in charge of meeting out punishment. And it can be anywhere from a, you know, a, a huge cash fine, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to taking your license away. And, and actually, that is a big difference between Canada and the United States. Everyone who is on TV in the United States has to have an FCC license, which can be revoked. Yes, that's right. Whereas in Canada, the license goes to the broadcast corporation, not the individuals underneath it. That's right. So um, I, I know what this is like. And I, in my time at uh, The Edge, I was 113 and 1 defending um, against CBSC complaints. You, wait, wait, wait a minute. 113 to 1. Do you mean you won 113 or you lost? I did. Oh, good for you. Uh, and the one, wait, wait, Which one did you lose? David Carradine dropped the F-bomb on the radio, and I completely bobbled that one. That was my fault because I was listening. I went back and listened to the broadcast, and I listened to the wrong part of the broadcast, and I denied that it ever happened. That's even worse. I deserve to lose that one. Okay. But all the other ones, I won. So 113 and 1. And it takes several weeks to actually address one of these things because there's a whole protocol that you have to go through. And, um, you know, it, we, we all know that it's stupid because it's usually somebody who, you know, wants to be offended or, you know, it's a what about the children kind of complaint or it's somebody who misheard what was actually being said. So anyway, I, I, I appreciate your, your, your problem. You know, you know, all you're telling me is that my entire broadcast career, the boss was simply too lazy to do their fucking jobs <laughs> and respond to the complaint. They're like, listen, I don't want to have to deal with paperwork. So no matter how great that content was, stop doing it because I don't want to push a piece of paper across my desk. Yeah, and I, I've, I'm guilty of saying that. I really am. Ugh. Listen, I get it. I totally, totally get it. The amount of paperwork is staggering. And when you're a manager, you already have a lot of paperwork. The last thing you need to do 
is deal with 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 the unpredictable kind of responses you'll get from a viewer or listener. I, I'm not I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that this is the, no no the no. You're, you're definitely not saying it right, and I understand where your thought thought process is coming from, and I think it's completely wrong from a overall product I agree. perspective because it, it stifles creativity. I agree. So I did a, a poll on the Twitter machine. Asking if retweeting her would make you uncomfortable and reflect poorly on me. And within 60 minutes, I already had 200 votes. 96% said, no, I'm not offended. 4% said, yes, it's inappropriate. Isn't that wild? And it's a woman who is self-identifying with those handles. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's so weird. So why is the why is the issue with you and not with the person who has chosen to identify herself to the Twitter mob with those names? Right, because well, I'm sure she, I'm sure she's getting all kinds of, of of heat for it. But I mean, she's she's being deliberately provocative, and for that, I say, way to go. Right, exactly, because no one makes a wave in this world. No one gets ahead. No one stands out from the crowd without taking a risk. And when you tell your broadcasters to stop taking risks, you become irrelevant. Because what you end up doing is making your broadcasters. Second guess everything that they say. Oh, yeah. Like the number of times that I would have to think, well, what the <laughs> would the boss think mm -hmm. when I press send on this tweet? Yep. And, and now I have to think about that, but I have to ask myself, will my clients be offended by this? And am I willing to risk losing the revenue that comes with the offense? There's a very good article in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. Uh, an interview with Bill Maher and Bill Maher, who hosts Politically Incorrect. Oh, sorry, he hosts uh, Real Time with Bill Maher now on on um, HBO. Yep. He talks about the Twitter machine and the Twitter mob and this idea that you know those on the on the left who are super super ultra woke are all about protecting feelings rather than exploring actual opinions. And he's right to a certain extent because it's not. But I, I don't think it's just on the left; it's on the right as well. It's everybody. You know, nobody. Everybody seems to think that there is a God given right to go through all of their lives without ever being offended by anything even once. And they, you know, they, they turn to Twitter, they turn to Facebook, they turn to any kind of social media and start spouting away like comic book man on, on the, on the, on the Simpsons trying to take people down and to shout down the unwoke, you know, it's just one of these examples of, you have the opportunity to make some really interesting content, stuff that people will want to consume. But if you're constantly afraid of offending that single 0.002% of your audience, you're never going to take chances. You're never going to take risks. You're never going to do something that makes you unique. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Because there, you know, there is no change without taking chances. And we don't want everything to stay the same. We don't want everything to come, become stale, right? So this is something that's, that's faced broadcasters for a very long time. Where is the line? But the, the line now is even more amorphous because the blowback on social media can be instantaneous and it can be withering. But it can also be temporary. No matter how withering that criticism is, that mob mentality moves on to something new the next day. Yeah, eventually they do. Yeah, but in the meantime, man, it's a firestorm. I mean, I'm very careful with my tweets. I uh, I got burned a, a couple of times 
by I thought I was being funny or I thought I was making a a, a point, but then uh, I just got complete. I mean, the firestorm was just absolutely. I just couldn't take it. So it's like, okay, fine. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be very very careful with what I type and um, uh, how I express myself because it's just not worth. It. I'm you know I'm I'm never going to advance my reputation in the world through Twitter. I'm just going to keep people you know, informed of what I'm doing. Um, in other forms of, of what I do, yes, I will push that line, but but not on Twitter. It's just not worth it. You know, that's a very interesting point. Uh, what I decided a little while back was that, by and large, and I don't always follow this rule myself, is I don't generally tweet out negativity. No, don't. I, I, I don't want people to scroll through their feed, and whenever they see me, it's negative, whether it be goddamn Donald Trump, you know, or or me bitching about, you know, mainstream media being crippled with fear of offending even a single person. Broadly, I want people, when they see me on Twitter, to walk away uh, informed mm -hmm. or entertained. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking, too. And so the number of, I, I would bet that for every tweet I send out, there are four tweets I don't. Um, yeah, I can, I that's, that's a pretty good ratio. You know, I, I get to, I, I, I post it. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a political cartoon. Maybe it's a snarky comments. Maybe it's something like that. Then I go, you know what? Who really gives a shit what I think? Uh, yeah. And is it really worth the damage to any intellectual capital that you have? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, again, Twitter is something that I use to either A, pump out information that I think is relevant to anybody who would follow me, and B, um, it, I use it as a news source that I take with a big grin. So. In, in some cases, more like a salt lick. Oh boy, a huge block of salt. for this week's episode, as Vanessa Azoli writes on geeksandbeats.com, is the release of Robbie Robertson and Friends' cover of The Weight for Playing for Change. Joining us now for uh, at least hopefully an explanation as to why this was necessary is longtime industry big shot Eric Alper. <laughs> Eric, good to have you with us. <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's a that's a fine introduction. Why are people nice, Eric Alper? Why do people why why do people do the things that they do to help other people? Why is that? What what is playing for change? 
You know, Playing for Change is a nonprofit organization, and what they do is that they are a movement that's dedicated to inspire and connect the world through music. So they have a lot of artists around the world, and I'm talking dozens and dozens of artists that are connected with Playing for Change. And what they do is that they, every now and again, around every two or three or four months, they'll pick a song, and each of these musicians around the world will take a part in a song and perform it on audio and video and then through the magic of editing you've got a really a worldwide video um, taken from artists from Africa and India and Indonesia and Iran and Iraq and China and Canada and the US um, showing people that the universal language is truly music. What are we trying to draw attention to with this? It depends on on the song. So specifically for the Playing for Change version with Robbie Robertson, where they do a cover of the band's The Weight, um, because giving back has always been a priority, not only for Robbie Robertson and the band, but they have connected at Cambria, which is a camp. It's a safe, nurturing place where kids with juvenile arthritis in Minnesota and Ontario can find not only companionship, but they learn about independence, and they also make friends for life. Cambria also sponsors youth athletic programs across North America. So every time that somebody views the video, every time that somebody streams the video, they actually make a little bit of money that's going towards this camp. And of course, you can make donations through their website as well. Okay, well, it's an interesting explanation. With that in mind, I, I guess then this sort of conjures up the idea that this is an effective means of trying to raise awareness for things but you know again at geeksandbeats.com we we recognize this isn't the first time that the music industry has recognized the power of bringing superstars together we've got the top five songs that are songs for a cause you tell me which one's your favorite first of all we got wave and flag by clean on we are the world mm -hmm. uh, no there comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. Yeah, I just, I, I'm surprised I wasn't like right at the top of the list. Uh, the MTV All-Stars with What's Going On, we're all in... M MTM, Eric, do you remember that one? I, I vaguely remember that one. It opens with Bono, Gwen Stefani, and Aaron Lewis... Released in 2001, it was the brainchild of the man at U2 and Jermaine Dupree to cover Marvin Gaye's 71 classic. They were raising funds and awareness for artists against AIDS worldwide. I don't remember that, honestly, but okay. All right, and so we're all in the same gang, the West Coast Stars, and uh, the number five on the list. Wait, 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 wait. Back. Eric, do you remember that number four one? I do. That, that one okay. I do remember. That's because it was the 90s. <laughs> I, like, I, I'm supposed to be... I should remember that. Maybe I need some Prevagen. I don't know. What's going on? I think Alan actually brings up a, a really good point without actually bringing up a point. <laughs> you know how often that happens on this show? The sheer amount of charity singles that happened right after Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas in 1984, opened up the 
floodgates to it seemed every single artist that was a recording artist not only wanted to help out using music but was actually demanded upon to use music and lending their voice and their name to create change so what you end up is there's probably dozens of charity singles that raise hundreds of thousands of dollars that the three of us have no idea and don't remember a single thing about it it was that many singles that took place in a good 20-year period after Band-Aid. Okay, let's let's go through the list again. Number one was what? Number one on the list was Wave and Flag by Young Artists for Haiti. Yeah, that's uh, Canada and everybody. Okay, number two. The number two one was the one that really was the first one for me as far as I'm concerned, which was from 1985, written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. We Are the and World. We Are the World. Quincy Jones produced it, Famine Relief for Africa. It was the first ever single to be certified multi-platinum and it received a quadruple platinum certification by the recording industry. Number three. What's going on? All right. Number four. The We're All the Same Gang. Okay. Number five. Tears in Heaven. Did twice around. Is this, is this ringing a bell yet? Well, Tears in Heaven. That was 2004. Yeah, I know, but it was an Eric Clapton single. It was an unplugged single. How? Uh, see, I, okay. To go back to Eric's point, yes, there have been too many charity singles. I can't keep track of them all. I have no idea what... Tears in Heaven was in aid of, other than... Tsunami Relief. Sharon was it? Oh. Simon Cowell. What, yeah, really? If there's, there's so, no. frantically typing in the background trying to figure out what <laughs> any of these are. And Eric, I wonder if this um, is, is evidence that there's a law of diminishing returns. As you point out, when we started off back in the 80s doing this sort of thing, and we saw how successful it was, suddenly everybody had to have a cause song. Yeah, and it was also just the fact that I think not only was there a diminishing return in terms of the value of having a single, but the what, what you do with it is is a big deal too. You know, when when Band Aid and USA for Africa and Northern Light and all sorts of, of countries around the world got together to put the emphasis on on Ethiopia and the famine that was going on there, um, it, it it was so new that I think it was okay for every single radio station and television station to get behind the cause. Now, with the way that things are structured, you would never have a country song, even if it was for charity, even if it was for a great cause, you would never hear it on a pop station. Or, same thing, you would never hear an Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber-led charitable single on an alternative rock station. So, I think that, you know, where those lines are drawn in the sand, it's a lot easier easier to actually produce one of these singles thanks to you know people not having to be in the same studio anymore as much as USA for Africa or Band-Aid or Northern Lights was but at the same point you are still playing to a niche audience as any of these pop or rock artists are and that's a smaller return than of course trying to break through and bust open the entire world all following what you're doing. There was a period of time when nobody was doing these things. Band-Aid really was the first that broke things wide open. This idea of getting all of these artists in a studio at the same time, checking their egos at the door so they could play <laughs> this song. Hang on. How how much do you think they really check their egos at the door? Because I see the pans in the studio, and not everyone looks happy to be standing next to somebody. No, 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 no. I mean, it was they were strong-armed into being there. And we're talking about Band-Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas. And Bob yeah. Geldof really, really... Uh, leaned heavily in a lot of these people, and they didn't want to be there. They were guilted into being there, some of them. Uh, but th this idea... Who, who, who? Uh, 
you know what? I'm going to have to go back and look at the list. But if you look at their faces in the in the video. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I, I remember Tears for Fears had no idea that they were going to be performing on Live Aid. And that Bob Geldof just blurted their name out there. Oh, and there they were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but we we we've passed that phase. We're we're never going to have another Live Aid. We're never going to have another Band Aid. Uh, we're never going to have uh, you know even a Live Eight, which was not all that long ago. So you know maybe the era of the charity concert, the charity singer is, is is long gone. Maybe it is, or maybe it's just moved on to a different venue. You know, you and I have talked in the past about how DJ Marshmallow oh. did the first concert in. Fortnite, the video game, and uh, virtual reality is increasingly becoming a, a venue where we're exploring that as a, as a means of putting you right there in the middle of the action. Wouldn't it be great to stand on a stage next to Bono singing a song? Fair enough. That might be the way things are going with VR and AR. Yep. Okay. I'll give you that. Eric, what do you think? Well, I, I think that there's always a couple of, of massive charitable initiatives that people are doing from around the world, like the lead singer of Imagine Dragons um, putting together a hometown concert in order to put pressure um, on the Mormon church to um, to have gay and lesbians allowed in their church. Um, there's also, in he, right here in Canada, We Day from the Free the Children, now called We, they kind of put together charitable concerts um, right across Canada with a lot of artists and in the States, they, there's certainly um, um, a lot of shows, but I don't think anything on the global scale of, of what Live Aid or Band-Aid is. And it's funny because like the, the sheer amount of snark I think that a, a concert would have these days, you know, would be would be insurmountable. The, the sheer amount of negative tweeting going on of Coldplay flying around the world to help raise money for cause would be in the hundreds of thousands or or artists that were trying to do good in the world um, would be would kind of I think be a little bit hated on these days because uh, they'll be branded as hypocrites for for all the good things that they're trying to do but I think the days of a global concert I, I think is over we just we're just living in a 500 channel universe these days and it's hard enough to gather everybody all around the television set for you know a, a a, a last show like Game of Thrones that, you know, for all intents and purposes was, was pretty popular, but nowhere near the ratings when MASH was on the air 25, 40 years ago. That's a good point. I mean, we have the Global Citizen concert, and yeah. that's been uh, trashed quite a bit by a lot of people from a lot of different quarters. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Longtime music industry exec Eric Elper joins us from a secret laboratory buried deep inside a hollowed-out volcano. <laughs> I like that. That's awesome. Thanks for bearing with it all. Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto because when you think class, you think Trump. Time now for Geeks and Beats updates. What do you got? Well, I'm looking to you, my friend. I'm the guy who already landed the $2,500 sponsorship from Apmatech, which is the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association. 
responsible for bringing the autonomous vehicle research facility to Canada. Yes, you did. Okay. Those guys are awesome. They're going to let us use their booth at CES 2020 to broadcast live on location from the Consumer Electronics Show. But we're still about five grand shy of what we need to send you, me, and our ace director slash producer, Sean Jate down there to cover it properly. Right. Okay. I'm going to find... Oh, it's just going to take a while, but I'm going to go through my email. There is somebody that is interested in talking to us about this. I will follow up this week. I promise I will. I must have it somewhere in one of these folders. In the meantime, we have managed to raise about half the funds that we ultimately need to get there to CES 2020 through our GoFundMe uh, account. And over at Patreon and PayPal, we're continuing to receive funds from our patrons. We have 41 patrons helping bring in a whopping $55 an episode. Well, you know, that helps. Every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. So we want to say thank you to everyone who is a patron of The Big Show on Patreon.com. Uh, among the members who have uh, shelled out in the past, Wesley Sadgrove, Walter McVeigh, Victor Biggio, who we already know is our patron in residence, who says if you donate 100 bucks via GoFundMe, he will send you a miracle travel mug of traveling from the Geeks and Beats swag store. Tyler Bergsma, Trish Castling, TJ Webb, Tim Rickert, Tim Heron, and Thomas Foster are among those who are supporting us on Patreon. But if you don't want to set up a Patreon account and you still want to support us, you can do so via PayPal. You just go to the Geeks and Beats website, click the support the show link. Yeah, I'm still looking for that other thing. I'll find it and I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze some money out of them somehow. I'm getting a little nervous here, man. I thought this was like a done deal. I thought you had like a thing booked and it was all ready to go. Uh, no, that's... Oh. I did send you this uh, email about the auto blow, did I not? Wait, what? I sent you the... I'd, you haven't seen it? Hang on. It's shown up as asterisk, 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 spam. <laughs> I, you'll see why. Go into it. Okay. Autoblow AI shatters male sex toy crowdfunding record and launches to public with How It's Made short documentary and cartoon. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the illustration here uh, appears to have a rather large zucchini. Uh, I think so, or an extremely large... Cucumber? Cucumber, yeah. Uh, allegedly, it has raised $755,000 by 5,500 men in 64 countries? I don't even, yeah. I, um, yeah. I, I, what am, oh, I wanted your opinion on this because I looked at this and I thought, I mean. Yeah, what did you think? Okay, well, here we go. Brian Sloan, the sex toy inventor behind the product, produced a short documentary that takes, takes viewers on a journey to Serbia. Hey, Jorge. He's coming to your town. To meet the team that had to watch and annotate a thousand hours of blowjob videos. And to Canada to meet the artificial intelligence scientists who use machine learning to discover movements that are the 16 building blocks of BJ's. There are 16 building blocks. I, yes, this is science. The Autoblow AI uses a microcontroller in combination with an IR beam sensor 
and magnetic field centers to control a gripper that manipulates a silicone sleeve between any of 250 different points along a five-inch long stroking plane. Um, five inches. Is that all we need? It's science. Twelve years ago, this is uh, Autoblow inventor Brian Sloan. Twelve years ago, when I sold my first Autoblows, oh, this has been around for a while. Uh, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm not even going to read anymore more of this because it just... Uh, Okay, so if it's a five-inch long stroking I, plane, in the Journal of Urology, researchers found among a group of 80 men that the average penis size is three and a half inches uh, uh, when flaccid and 5.1 inches when erect. I, I, I got so <laughs> those 5,500 men in 64 countries who raised three-quarters of a million dollars uh -huh. clearly are below average. Yeah, I, I just... I forward this simply because it is science, and I thought um, it might be worth a few minutes on the podcast. And we are going to, listen, we were at CES last year where we talked about female things. Yes, female sex toys, which use teledildonics so That's that right. your remote lover could uh, perform his action and the woman would feel it on the other end of the line, metaphorically speaking. Correct. So I thought that, well... This is the sort of thing that we may run into if we're going to CES this year. I'm going to click on the autoblow.com. No! Okay. It, yeah. Um, it doesn't look much different than... What are those called? Um, they, they look like... Yeah, the, the, the flashlight of the fleshlight. Yeah, fleshlights, yeah. It looks like a system that just basically automatically handles the pumping action. Uh, yeah. But it's the AI that I'm interested in. I, that's, well, that's why I, I, it, it struck the... T I mean, they're, they're, you know, these sorts of sex toys have been around for a very long time, and... Uh, but not with AI. I, I just went to click the how it works option, and it popped up with an auto pop-up so you could buy it using the using the coupon code for a 20% discount <laughs> titled wrist 20 as in save your poor tired wrist with a new auto blow uh, okay they're they're claiming to have a mega sale but if this really was a mega sale wouldn't this be more than 5 inches um depending on your definition of mega i suppose well if we know what the average male I, you know what? Is. I think we've we've got we've eaten this. Dude, you brought this. Up. I know. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it is my fault. It is totally my fault. <laughs> Completely my fault. I'm just trying to understand the science. Uh, yeah, me too. That's why I forwarded to you because you're the science geek of the bunch. They have an accessories list. There's a <laughs> what? Yeah, for the Auto Blow AI and the Auto Blow XT. Oh, I wonder what the XT is. It, is <laughs> Is, is the XT for, for men who have more than 5.1 inches? No, it's turbocharged. Oh, it's a wallet-friendly, tried-and-trusted basic blowjob machine, according to the description. Wallet-friendly. Yes, because that's your priority. Yeah. Yeah, it has interchangeable sleeves that can be easily cleaned using soapy water or a toy cleaner. I'm still not understanding the AI side of this, because, mm. as we know, artificial intelligence, while artificial, is far from intelligent. And really all we're talking about when we talk about AI is machine learning. 
which are essentially algorithms that use an insane amount of data mm -hmm. to establish um, a patterns. But how I want to know if this is artificial intelligence or machine learning, what that big data set was that told them this is how it should work. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, I'm convinced that this is just a marketing gimmick. Maybe it is. I'll leave it with you. You can uh, get to the bottom of this. Okay. Oh, okay. Now I understand why they have multiple versions. They've got not multiple versions for length, but size A, B, and C for girth. Like my New Balance running shoes, which come in different widths. How much were your New Balance running shoes? Uh, they were 159 a pair. Holy crap! That's exactly the same price as the Auto Blow. Oh, no, really? 159.95. That's the web price. You'll save 11% at retail. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play, or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.